This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, broadcasting on CFUR 88.7, and I'm your host, Stuart Parker. Welcome to Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, broadcasting on CFUR 88.7 on the Ides of March. I'm Stuart Parker, your host, and I'm introducing a new monthly feature to the show that will run the week after the political panel, uh, where I go through a number of interviews from the past interviews that I've collected over the years and uh, have never seen the light of day, but have only appreciated in value. The first of this interview set is a series of interviews I conducted with civil rights leader and uh, musician, actor, director, man of many talents, Leon Bibb. I'm Leon Bibb's authorized biographer, and I'm ashamed to say that 10 years after producing these interviews, nine years after my research trip to Louisville, Kentucky, the book about Leon has yet to appear. And with so much on my desk, I don't know when I'm going to get to it. Uh, So you, folks are going to get to hear a number of these interviews, and they may be the only trace of this biographical work if I don't buckle down and get to it soon. Now, a number of you uh, may not know who Leon Bibb is. He was, after all, born in 1922 and uh, died in the past decade. He was born in Louisville, Kentucky, to uh, what we would uh, call the black elite of that city during segregation. What that means is that uh, his family held important positions in the community, postal workers, librarians, funeral directors. These were jobs that black people were allowed to have in the segregated South. Uh, But uh, his family also tried to uh, buck the two-party system and run a pro-integration slate of black candidates in the 1920s, something for which it faced violent reprisals for years thereafter and uh, caused Leon to witness lynchings um, with his father very early in life. Uh, Leon left Louisville Uh, not before meeting some interesting folks like uh, the father of the future, Muhammad Ali. Mr. Clay uh, painted some portraits of members of Leon's family. Uh, Leon moved to New York, and he fell in with a faction of the black intelligentsia there that does not exist today. But in the 1950s, uh, Paul Robeson, was the most prominent uh, black leader and intellectual in the United States. Robeson was a Marxist, a dialectical materialist, who believed that identity politics was a terrible danger 
and sought to bring working class people of all nations, all races together. Uh, he spent uh, much of his career singing for miners, sometimes black miners outside of Johannesburg and South Africa, sometimes Welsh coal miners, and he sang songs of liberation. Um, Robeson was associated with Richard Wright, the author of the book Native Son, one of the most important black socialist interventions in American thought. Uh, now, that was a different faction than the religious faction that we associate with Martin Luther King, who taught that uh, everyone was equal in the sight of God and that God uh, was repelled by racism. He was also not part of the black nationalist faction we associate with Muhammad Ali, uh, that uh, argued that black separatism was the way to go. There was never going to be a peace that could be achieved with white America. Uh, Leon fell in with the materialists, the socialists, who saw the struggle for black liberation in the context of a global struggle for the liberation of the working class. And it's in that context that Leon became a musician, uh, like Paul Robeson, who popularized the music of slaves and the descendants of slaves in the American South, the so-called Negro spiritual. Um, but uh, these folks were also interested in these big cross-class, uh, these big multiracial working-class alliances uh, around the world. Leon's uh, two eldest children, his twins, one of whom is Eric Bibb, an important musician in Sweden today, uh, Paul Robeson was their godfather. And it's an important context in which to understand Leon. Leon was a prominent member of the folk music and civil rights scene that culminated in the second march on Selma in 1963 where Leon is pictured on the cover of Life magazine with his friends Harry Belafonte and Joan Baez singing Joe Hill, one of the most important songs to his mentor Paul Robeson, one of the most important anti-identity politics, working class unity songs you'll encounter. And we know that because we think of Joe Hill as Joe Hill, not as Joel Haglund, the Swedish immigrant. Uh, Joe wanted us to know him as Joe. He wanted people to speak his language and understand that his struggle was their struggle. And that's what Leon took to the Second March on Selma. Uh, that's what he took to his other civil rights struggles until touring as Bill Cosby's opening act in 1968, he performed at the Pacific Coliseum in Vancouver and was so stunned, A, by the natural beauty of Vancouver and B, by the complete absence of the main American racial drama in Vancouver. Vancouver has long been the least black city in North America 
Leon decided to retire into uh, Vancouver in slow motion, uh, became a patron of the Arts Club, and became a local director and opinion leader uh, who very much sought to blend in. He did not try to bring his American fame to Vancouver. Rather, he sought to disappear into Vancouver uh, exhausted by the factionalism and increasing division in the civil rights movement and by the breakdown of his mentor, Paul Robeson. At the end of his life, knowing he was dying, Leon decided to get to work on his authorized biography. As a KG guy, he picked two people who were highly attention-seeking and authorized both of us hoping that one of us would get the biography done. That hasn't happened. But the interviews that I'm going to play, which took place in May and June and September of 2011, show you the extraordinary perspective of one of North America's least celebrated great black artists and intellectuals. Before I play some of our interviews, I'm going to treat you to one of the songs of which Leon was proudest that he uh, developed only in his 80s um, called The River Melody. It's a tribute to Paul Robeson who changed the song Old Man River from a white supremacist Broadway musical ditty about the hopelessness of black people into a song of liberation and resistance. And he fuses it in this song with really the work of the, the poet laureate of 20th century black America, Langston Hughes, and his extraordinarily moving tetrapartite, The Negro Speaks of Rivers poem. So take a listen to that, and from there I'll slide you straight into my conversations with Leon Bibb, reassessing his past and the meanings and implications of North America's trip from segregation to integration and from the welfare state to neoliberalism. There's one more river and that one river is Jordan There's one more river There's one more river to cross There's one more river And that one river is Jordan There's one more river There's one more river to cross Jordan's river is chilly and cold There's one more river to cross Chills the body but not the soul There's one more river to cross There's one more river And that one river is Jordan There's one more river There's one more river to cross There's one more river And that one river is Jordan Mm -hmm. 
I've known rivers, ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep, like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo, and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans, and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep, like the rivers. If I had wings like Noah's dove, I'd fly up the river to that girl I love. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans, and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. 
my soul has grown deep like the rivers. There's an old man called the Mississippi That's the old man I don't like to be What does he care if the land's got troubles What does he care if a man ain't free Old man river that old man river He must know something But don't say nothing He just keeps rolling He keeps on rolling along He don't plant taters He don't plant cotton And then that plants them is soon forgotten but old man river he just keeps rolling along you and me we sweat and strain bodies all aching and racked with pain that bunch lift that bin you get a little drunk and you land in jail but I keep laughing instead of crying I'll keep on fighting until I Uh, that that grabbed me in uh, your um, 
Yeah, this is this is your earliest one. This is in August 2005. This is a year and a half before you finish this project. You mention, and then you never mention again for the rest of it, that you believe that racism is permanent, that there is a permanence to racism that will never actually make it all the way to a society that is not racist. I still believe that, Stuart. I, I know it might sound... Um, well, pessimistic is hardly the word to describe it, but difference is at the heart of uh, racism, it's at the heart of discrimination, segregation. Segregation, certainly, uh, profiling, it is, it is uh, the heart of it. Uh, and human beings, it seems to me, have a difficult time uh, with difference. Uh, it isn't just color difference either. Uh, there are those who physically, uh, I mean, have physical strong opinions about this difference. One of the most beautiful things that happened in this past weekend, in this past week actually, was my niece. My niece has I don't know what the disease is, I'm not even interested in finding out, mainly because she herself uh, has dealt with it and overcome it. And that's my niece, Marie, who still lives in Louisville. Uh, she has part skin that is almost white, and the rest of her complexion is beige, or whatever you want to call it, a light brown. Uh, she conducts herself among people uh, like you can look at my difference if you'd like and you can make a comment about it. But um, in my body, I'm, I'm quite content. And the way she involves herself in conversation, and um, she's so much like my sister, who I totally love and adore. Uh, and when she passed, it was a tremendous loss to me. Uh, but Marie is one of the most, well, I'm going to use the word mature, um, confident, articulate, all of those marvelous things. She's that, and, and she makes no uh, effort to hide herself or any parts of her body. Uh, she's just, you, you would really have enjoyed talking to her, because she's from a family of uh, a very accomplished uh, young people. Well, they're no longer young they are now, but, uh, but um, her sister is, uh, has been in uh, government administrations. She stayed running the family business, but the main thing that I'm talking about, that, I, that is a difference, and she's accomplished the ability to deal with it. And on the other hand, I have a, another friend who's talented, um, and musical and a, a very good composer and she doesn't deal with difference at all well. Um, she constantly talks about her difference and she's a crippled in a sense and I thought of it immediately. They both I've seen within the last ten days and the difference between Marie and her are just huge. So it's based on this, we, I, and I mean globally we, 
and I mean the statement, I meant the statement globally. We don't, it appears to me, it appears to me that we don't deal with difference without recognition, uh, we, we question it, we can do it with our eyes, we can uh, question with our hands on my face, who was that, what was that, why is that, why do they look like that, why do they wear a hat like that, uh, a turban or men with skirts on, why are they, skirt, why are they skirted, um, why are they often in foreign countries standing in groups on the corners? Yes, I would know that there is unemployment like there is in any <laughs> other country, but why, why that kind of congregation? Why is it that uh, men uh, victimize women, wives uh, of women, period, uh, and deny them education and rights? Why are those differences made? And because of that, it's easy to uh, suggest that, well it's easy for me at least, to feel that um, racial difference is going to be very difficult to do away with or erase or, or find useless and no longer, unless there, and here is a, well I've drawn a conclusion from, uh, I don't think unless there's peace, I really mean peace. Uh, armaments makers cannot supply guns and tanks to other peoples who then sell those same articles to other peoples who attack other peoples. I don't think that uh, uh, the chances for uh, a non-racial discriminatory action is, is going to be dealt with. Um, I, I, and Particularly uh, among among blacks, and oh, here we've got another good example. I think it used to be blacks because the population among Spanish-speaking uh, people uh, in the United States, particularly, wasn't large enough for them to be visible to the extent that now they are they are called blacks and Spanish. You know, mm -hmm. in elections particularly. <laughs> uh, they are coupled because both of them are different. I think that um, certainly here in uh, Canada, when uh, you go visit a museum, like yesterday, day before yesterday, I was with my nieces at uh, the Bill Reed Museum downtown. And uh, when you see the difference, and you know how that difference was how the First Nations people, the Aboriginal people, were used. It's hard to believe that, that, that that's going to end. Uh, are you talking, when you say, will ever be, I'm wondering if I put an end date on it, because... Uh, <laughs> no, no, uh, this was just... During a, my life, I, I, I could qualify and say, do it in my life, it won't end, and that would be easy to say, and, and easy to... to uh, be realized, but uh, will my great-grandchildren, will my great-grandchildren feel some of the same uh, efforts on the part of certain groups of people to separate them from, uh, from the body of people? Would that, I can't say, but would it be uh, uh, based on the, a legacy of the way they treated 
black people in my time, it's hard to believe that it would be different. Or at least I find it hard to believe that it would be different. When I was reading through this, it's like you're, you're not coming out with platitudes, you're confronting. You know, you have, because of the length of your lifetime, there are these two questions I want to ask you about how race has changed in America. You touched on the rise of Hispanic as a national category. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that happened, I mean, when you were a kid in Louisville, you said what? that right, man. I I were I practiced. Um, I um, You're right. Uh, Jews were not white. Poles were only sort of white. Italians weren't really white. One of the things that's happened in your lifetime is that there are all kinds of groups in American society that were not white when you were a kid, but are white now. And you are just as black no. as you were. Absolutely. And I'm really interested in your thoughts because you got to watch that change. In particular, in the you know, working in the industry in which you did and dealing with the blacklist, you saw Jewish people before they became white and no Jewish people since they've become white. And I'm really interested in your take on why some groups got to become white and some didn't, and how you feel about that process unfolding. Well, um, you caught me uh, with a big question, and I, I was kind of trying to think about why I do, and it's, it's so interesting how things come up. I had a long discussion with a close friend the other day about um, races, uh, and we made the separation, uh, Caucasians, you've just stated it as well. Um, she took the position that every group of people uh, that were not black or brown uh, were Caucasians. And you've just stated something that I also, if I don't, uh, agree with it, I think very seriously, that they've grown to Caucasian-ship. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, they, they've, uh, uh, and it is a question, why, uh, why now that blacks have been here on these shores, or North America certainly, uh, long before it's been recorded as slavery, but in numbers that you can recognize as a body of people. They've been here for a long time. The average black family has ancestors who have lived here a hundred years longer than the average white family. Yeah, there again, you see. Um, and that's, that's always been something that I've thought about. Uh, I didn't quite understand it, and I've not made any conclusions from it, like you probably have, but I, I do know that that's true, the statement that you just made. And you, you don't mind, but I'm going to draw it. Um, I saw John Lewis yesterday in a documentary. Uh, he was talking about his association with Martin Luther King. And he never once stated that he felt that things had changed, dramatically changed, where he and other blacks who were with Martin in those periods, those original small group of people, how their lives 
and many of them have passed since then, how their lives were changed by what is being recorded as change today. I, quite frankly, am, I really question when people say, well, things have been better, if things have changed. Well, t over time, you would hope that there would be some change, there would have to be some change. Um, the demands on, on the, the black in terms of labor, let's say, are such that they would have to, they would have had to have been changed. Uh, how many unions didn't accept, accept black uh, members for a long, long time? You'd ha hope that that would change because it's based on a so-called democratic uh, theory. They would have to be, uh, they would have to be accepted. But um, what kind of jobs do they get in the line of employment? And invariably, they, they start out uh, at the bottom of the ladder and work up through the system. Um, that, to me, is racism if they are black. I, discrimination is not a word I would use there. Um, we are talking about a, a president that was elected in 2008. Uh, uh, there are a whole group of people who some of whom self-describe themselves as uh, racist. They don't want him in there, in that presidency. Uh, and they are, the anger, as you can hear and see on their faces, when they say, uh, I don't want that nigga there, so he's got to go. Uh, that's racism. This is in my time, his time, and it will, it's my theory, it will, it will continue to, to uh, I, I can't say a limit on it, but I would, I would hope, I would hope that my great-grandchildren or their children would live in a society. But where would they, under what circumstances would they live? Would they be, color of skin has begun to feel, has, from the time that slaves were brought to North America, they were so different and they've made struggles and advances in certain ways, but they still constitute, and I think it's, a lot of it is based on, I think there's a threat involved with the recognition of a black person. And um, quite frankly, frankly, if things don't change, like um, separations, and discriminations and such, we're going to outproduce in terms of population. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's going to come to some major conflict. It's like the Asian, the, the Chinese and the blacks. If they, if they ever got together <laughs> and formed some kind of uh, 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 pact together, it would be uh, very interesting and dramatically so. Well, that's what's going on in East Africa. Mm -hmm. China vastly outstrips the West in the projects it's involved in mm -hmm. in East Africa mm -hmm. in terms of industrialization mm -hmm. and energy. Mm -hmm. It's. Uh, I, yeah. I think, yeah, you know, again, um, the thinkers who have a, 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 a long view vision have to think with some sense of disturbance that they have to start practicing now to continue 
the racism or it, it can possibly happen. You are listening to CFUR 88.7 on your FM dial. I'm Stuart Parker, the host of Missing Peter Zosky and Prince George, and today we're in the archives with a never-before-broadcast interview of world-renowned civil rights leader and musician Leon Bibb. Leon is now deceased. This interview was done a couple of years before his death uh, in the spring and uh, summer of 2011. We now return to Leon on the subject of being an exotic. Uh, A child and an adolescent, you were colored. And when you were a young adult, you were a Negro. And when you were middle-aged, you were black. And today, you're African-American. And, and I'm living in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> and so, what? This is one of my my other questions. Is you were, um, uh, what if these terms, just because these terms all applied to you over the course of your life, what if these terms mean nearly the same thing, but not precisely the same thing? Explain. What if who was colored was was actually a different set of people than the people today who are African-American? Or if not a different set, did you... Are there different ways that being that identity shifted as the terms shifted? Is what's the difference between being colored in your youth and being African American today? Do the terms reflect anything? Well, I can tell a little story, and I would, after this story, I'd like to go on a different level and discuss it on a different level. Um, I was in New York in uh, 1954, five, and uh, I saw this ad in the paper which you know about because it's mentioned there. And um, it asked to audition colored singers. And the man who placed the ad, I called the number and he said, are you colored? And I said, no, I'm a Negro. Because that was a period we had moved to, uh, when I say we, uh, there were, I don't even remember who started Negro. That's the other strange thing. Who, who, be, who was called a Negro first? Whether ex-slaves are still working in the South as, as cheap labor, who were called Negroes? Because it's my understanding that Negroes is an outgrowth of the word nigger. So uh, someone must have said, I can make up the story, someone must have said, well, you can't call them that anymore. They're colored, don't you know? And then somebody said, well, let's call them Negro. Where does that come from? But I also know that Negro has a a basis in in Africa, too. And so, colored Negro, black, Afro-American, 
Uh, now they've called them, uh, we are called Afro-Canadian, we're called Afro-anything, uh, wherever we are, and we've established a community, that's what we are called, uh, from that community, it's my feeling. When I got to Vancouver, I, um, I realized that I was very different, because there weren't many other black people here. Uh, it, had, it was in the course of the first ten years, ten years, that I began to see black people. Um, and you know what, I don't call them Afro anything, they were just black people. Many of whom were uh, students uh, from Africa. Uh, why Africa and why did I think they were students? They looked, they had that beautiful black-purple skin and uh, they, they just looked different. Um, and interestingly, I found that very exciting to see them. Um, I'm not suggesting that, that uh, blacks don't make differences and blacks are not racist in their thinking sometimes, but these were different people um, and I did have a great admiration for them. Um, I felt, except for the false arrest, I felt um, very comfortable. I don't know, and this is an interesting thing. Maybe I felt more comfortable because I was rare. There were not a lot of other people like me. So if somebody thought I was different, um, oh, I could punch my chest out and say, yes, yes, I'm, I'm different. I didn't, have to, I didn't have to explain my blackness. It was, I was almost like a, an oddity. And it was proven out, proven out when I was in Jacques It was so clear to me that um, my performance wasn't necessarily uh, applauded because I, I had a marvelous role to sing and played it. I think, well, it was a rarity to see a black person on a stage with other white actors performing. It just unless they'd seen a minstrel show earlier, their parents had seen a show, or if they'd seen um, uh, Acts at the Cave or something like that. And they too were rarities in the city. They came and went. Uh, I was here all the time. That was one of the reasons, uh, I know that was one of the reasons I was falsely arrested. That these very young policemen saw me standing on a corner, looking around trying to find the little grocery store which had flowers out in front of it at York and U. And I, um, I finally located it, but I, they saw me when I was standing there looking around. I had on a silk shirt tight-fitting jeans, and a hat. Wow. Hat with a wide brim, too. That's right. That's, that's very odd. So, uh, I was falsely arrested uh, and rescued by the commissioner who had heard of me and knew me. But, um, by and large, I felt, I felt like I was special for a long time. 
So what it sounds like though, like when you think about like, so when you were you got here in uh, seventy, uh, I, I landed the, here in November eighth, nineteen seventy. Yeah. So you got here. Do you think it was mainly a sort of American media portrayals of black people that people used to understand you initially, or what sort of experiences do you think that they drew on, given their lack of their own historical experience? Well, part of it was that they they didn't know a lot about blacks, and they were we were like rarities in those days, and I think. When you're a rarity, people are more wondering. Now, they're they're trying to place you in some category themselves, and um, it might be motivated by racism. But there was a there was an interest. It seemed to me that uh, well, it certainly happened to me uh, that. And there were only a certain group of people who did this, who wanted to know what kind of a person I was. I met a, a lot of uh, local, uh, high-placed citizens in my first uh, oh, two or three months, because there were some people who had um, a knowledge, an intellectual knowledge, and as well uh, as a personal knowledge, a more depth, uh, knowledge more depth, because they had been, they traveled. They were people who had an international understanding of the world's population. And so, if I, if I spoke in a certain way, or if I had knowledge of certain things that we shared, then I became a, a more acceptable person in their group, because I could talk like they did, or I could I knew some of the same things. When somebody talked about a Rodin, I had some, I had some contribution. Or if they were talking about the Medici's, and I would have some understanding of what they were talking about and would participate. That just was like a calling card to the next group and the next group. That I recognized was a very special, a special thing, accorded me at that particular time. And I think it would have recorded, it would have been the same if there were other, uh, a larger number of uh, blacks in Western Canada who would have received the same kind of a treatment. But I always felt, I always felt that I was separate, which meant that I had not joined. And if I don't join, um, I'm always going to question, what do, what, do, what do they really think about you, Leon? Do they think you're an oddity, because uh, you can speak and talk like they do about certain things? Am I someone new that they, they don't know uh, some, how many people? And I get the feeling, so I got the feeling so many times. Um, they were trying to learn more about me than I was interested in learning about them. I, and what's really so interesting to me it is, um, I didn't have a conversation, as I mentioned recently, I didn't have a, a conversation with a white person. A conversation? The whole time I lived in Louisville until I left. And that's the truth. I spoke to the Greek grocer and his wife on the corner, 
he was a neighborhood grocer. There were no black grocery stores. There were lawyers, doctors, everybody else. But there was the only, um, well, I didn't have, I didn't grow up with any white students in my class. I didn't know the difference between a Jew and Italian. Uh, I knew the difference by pictures of the Chinese uh, people. But uh, those pictures that I saw in, in textbooks during my elementary school, and very few, very, very few, right on through uh, junior high and high school, and two years, a year and a half, I went to college. I never talked to a white person. Um, I talked to the first white person when I got to New York. Now, I didn't know that that was racism as such. I called it, and my family called it, discrimination. Um, racism was a word that I learned after I left Louisville. I learned about it then. Um, but <clears throat> I would have to say that, um, and I, I can still say it, I was well received in those first years here, uh, and particularly after I had brought a property here and it was successful. But I'll tell you something, Stuart. Uh, I do not believe that there is not a large segment of the population in Vancouver who are who either don't appreciate difference or are racist. I've had I've had I've been referred to in racist terms in the last oh, about five years ago was the last time up till now. But, um, yes, I still think it exists. And it's that reason, it's for that reason, that I think that, well, certainly for the balance of my life, it will be in existence. And I, um, I think you have to, yeah, I think you almost have to be special. You have to, to, to um, gain the respect where uh, you're not referred to uh, in discriminatory terms, in racist terms. But you know, you never know what people talk, how people describe you in the confines of their home. You don't know that. Um, just as um, Obama was, I don't think he was surprised, but he recognized almost from the very beginning that he was climbing uphill because he was black. And uh, you can call it uh, whatever you want to, but what he was combating was racism. And when the, um, it's not confined to one group of people either. When I, when I first started to step ahead, it was started uh, no question about it. Uh, Mr. Smith, I forget his first name, I think it might have been Gary Smith, who uh, was the principal at, at North Central uh, Secondary School in, in Surrey. He and the school population and the teachers uh, and the people who lived in Surrey for all of those years felt the impact of the First Nations, I mean Indian 
people coming into that neighborhood in such large numbers. And he felt that in the school system there was going to be some conflicts, and he was right. And they still exist there. They still exist there. We hear terms about, uh, oh, they smell, you know. Why don't they ever, can't they know that, they, that turbans make them uh, different right off the bat? Uh, they're, they're various groups will feel uh, racism more than others, but it exists, um, and it's so deeply rooted, which is a very surprising thing. If you would think that in all the decades that have passed, there would have been some, not just growth that people refer to, all the time, but real growth, real away from it, real, uh, and I don't think it can be done because of the skin color. I really think that that determines it, uh, because um, I don't know what, uh, uh, I don't know what East Indians say about Chinese people. I don't know what they say in the confines of their privacy, what Chinese people say about blacks or, or Jews or whomever. Uh, whatever it is, if they say something derogatory, it's a racist remark. Uh, and I was talking about racism in its broadest term, but mostly specifically t talking about it as it relates to blacks, because uh, I know more about that. Uh, people will talk to me about how, oh yeah, that's, that's what you experienced, let me tell you what happened to me. That kind of thing uh, exists in the black community, and we share those stories because there is the feeling that um, if enough of us know, we might begin to develop uh, a real movement, a real movement. I'm always fascinated by uh, the rebels the, and doing slavery, and there were. Uh, what I also wonder, okay, so, so they would be successful. Would they go off and create a small black community? Or would they uh, intermingle with the rest of the population? Would that have, would that have changed uh, the attitude? Um, various other groups who've been not brought under duress, but there are various other groups who've come to North America, and as you mentioned earlier, they've gotten elevated out of serfs, uh, indentured servants, uh, uh, white trash, rednecks. Uh, they've all graduated out of their space at the outset. So, what could blacks have? It's my contention, no. Because the color identifies them, and that identification goes back historically and carries with it such, uh, well, it's a derogatory kind of an attitude that's just given, I think. Uh, and it's taught by parents. The, 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 um, there is a, uh, an ice cream uh, ad that's very popular on, on television. It's a huge, big red lips against a black ground. That's all that you see now. And the character talks 
not slang black, street black, but he's got this sound in the voice. Every time I hear it, I say, um, I don't understand how that's continued, because for me, it's a derogatory, stereotypic way of depicting. Uh, it's so close to the white lips, minstrel kind of thing. And um, it's the same way when I go to the theater. If I see a production, I saw a production of Aeneas Behaving here at Vancouver. I, I, was, I wrote I wrote the theater a letter, and instead of the person who had written it to um, anticipate an expectation, uh, which is almost always met with disappointment, I, I wrote the letter personally to that person who posted it on the bulletin board. And those blacks in that production for the longest time had very little to say to me. Most of them couldn't have understood the pain that I felt because they came from the island. They were Caribbeans. And their experience, not a, a lot different, but they just didn't feel it or accept it the same way. Um, they were servants too. And uh, they still are uh, without, uh, without the blacks on the Caribbean islands. There would be no resort uh, hotels. And, you, and sandy beaches, beaches that are in, inhabited mostly by white vacationers. This has been another broadcast of Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7, co-sponsored by Los Altos Institute, L-O-S-A-L-T-O-S dot C-A.